Yeah, so you can go ahead and, and introduce yourself. All right. So uh, hello, everyone. I am uh, um, just, you know, an ordinary citizen from Egypt who has been living here his entire, his entire time. I am 24 years old and uh, I study engineering. And uh, I have a bit of interest in politics and try to get outside what uh, the dominant narrative here in Egypt. Because things are pretty polarized here between two sides. Uh, so let's first begin about the things that led to the revolution in the first place, because it explains a lot what's happening right now in Egypt. So in 1952, we had instability in Egypt because the monarchy was very corrupt and it was inefficient in developing the, the country. <clears throat> so uh, the people were doing a lot of protests and uh, strikes and so on, which gave the opportunity to a group of officers in the army who were dissatisfied with what was happening to create a coup, which got them in power. And that's how we got Gamal Abdel Nasser and so on and so forth. And ever since we have had a capitalist class that was from the army itself, like the army generals decided to, you know, lead the companies themselves and, and so on. And that obviously was pretty inefficient which led to the failure of the uh, import substitution industrialization, which was going on by the, a lot of third world countries by then. And this led to the moment uh, Anwar Sadat took over and he basically decided to give up any idea of having an independent Egypt and decided to bow, so to speak, to the West which started with the World Bank assistance and so on, <clears throat> which led to him cutting subsidies. And this led to huge protests in 1977. It was called the Bread Rights. And here we call it the Revolution of the Hungry. So this made the regime know that they can't, like, you know, cut the support and subsidies and the policies of Nasser overnight. And they decided to do it slowly and with the assistance of the Gulf capital, which plays a huge role in the domination of the West on Egypt, like they are collaborating with each other. So this continued during the Mubarak era. He decided to slowly privatize our companies and so on. And he also decided to reverse the modest reforms Nasser decided to do in the countryside, which led to a huge influx of people to cities and so on. And this resulted in huge unemployment and deterioration in the living standards. And not so much, you know, uh, development of the productive forces. Like our economy did not stand a chance against the Western uh, corporations and products as we opened up our markets to the world. And this, and we also had another phenomenon of the Gulf countries buying our agricultural land and investing in our food companies to secure their own food needs. Uh, like for example, there is an, uh, like, for example, you'll find that Saudi capital is very dominant in a lot of our uh, in our markets. Like, they control 50% of beet sugar refining, 60% of our pasta and uh, production, and 42% of edible oil, and so on. So basically, our food was going to the Saudis first, or the Gulf countries first, and us later. And as we all know, there was a bit of a food crisis in 2008, which led to a bit of an increase in prices of food. And combine this 
with the falling living standards due to our country not catching up with the West. And you had the revolution in 2011. And uh, you know that it was like food was a, a very big part of it. When you know that the main slogan during the revolution was the bread, freedom and social justice. And you would find like people putting bread on their ears and wearing it like helmets and so on. So there was definitely a crisis back then. And uh, people decided to wake up and decide to put an end to foreign countries dominating us. But unfortunately, there was not like one big dominant group leading the efforts of the people in the rebellion. Like you had a big tent of all types of political spectrums in Tahrir Square during the revolution. You had the liberals, you had a tiny bit of Islamists, you had the socialists, you had the communists. But unfortunately, because of oppression during Mubarak era for the leftists, there was not, um, how do you say it, like a political party that could combine the efforts of the people, the spontaneous uprising, and aim it at something constructive to replace the old regime. Um, and let's be clear about the revolution itself is that it was uh, a surprise for everyone involved. Like the CIA itself did not expect the revolution to happen in the first place because they got their info from our leaders themselves, from Mubarak and Ben Ali in Tunisia and so on. So they did not expect it. And even at first they supported Mubarak. But then when they saw that the numbers in Tahrir Square were pretty huge and they could not stop it, they thought of destroying the revolution by subverting it, by funding some groups who appear that they are opposite, the opposition to the Mubarak regime, but at the same time, they can continue the new liberal project in Egypt. And that's where the Muslim Brotherhood appeared. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, as we all know, it has always been pretty much a tool of the West to try to have them like a second option in case that the secular regimes of Mubarak or Sadat decide to go their independent path or fall to any problems. So, and Mubarak as well was using the brotherhood as a way of keeping himself in power. Like he knew that the Egyptians would be worried about Islamists going to power, uh, like liberals, Christians, and socialists would be worried about them. So he kept them like uh, as a sort of controlled opposition to show the people that if I fail, these ones will come to power. And thus the West found a pretty good replacement to the Muslim, to, to the Mubarak regime in the form of the Muslim Brotherhood. And they decided to help them come to power through Gulf capital, especially Qatari uh, aid to the Muslim Brotherhood. And at the same time, the Egyptian military, which has been a sort of a deep state in itself since Gamal Abdel Nasser took power, they were satisfied to be ruling from the shadows while someone like Mubarak and uh, his party do the, the ruling in front of the people. So they were controlling the economy, but in the, from the shadows, they did not like appearing in the open. But when the revolution happened, they had to come out in the open and pretend to be on the side of the people. Like they appeared in the streets in their armor and they decided not to shoot the people because they knew that they would lose any power that they had that way. And at the same time, they were very glad that the Muslim Brotherhood would take power because they thought that they would continue ruling from the shadows while the Muslim Brotherhood rules from the outside. And for a time, for nearly a year from 20, 
11 to 2012, there was an alliance between the Muslim Brotherhood and the army to stop the forces of the revolution to reverse any aspiration for the people for by the people for freedom and to continue the new liberal project. Because let's be clear about it, the Muslim Brotherhood were not against the policies of new liberalism. They simply wanted to be the class in power. So it was uh, a dream for the Muslim Brotherhood to take control of Egypt. So as soon as the Muslim Brotherhood decided to fill the vacuum from the chaos of the revolution, they started right away trying to, you know, to take power from the military. Like when Mohammed Morsi won the presidential elections, he, and after winning the parliamentary elections as well, they were pretty much, in, let's say they rose to power very quickly and had a lot of power, more than they expected before. Like it was the first time in their history to have such large degree of control in Egypt. But at the same time, they decided to hurry up and instead of slowly hitting away at the military and trying to reduce their power, they decided to do it very quickly. And this worried the military, but at the same time, they were worried of uh, being shown to the open that they want to take power. But they had no other choice because they saw that the people were not satisfied with the rule of Muslim Brotherhood, that the aspirations of the revolution did not happen, that they did not improve the living conditions. And you also had a group of businessmen that were aligned with the army and naturally army businessmen who started funding groups to try to make the people make a popular demonstration against the Muslim Brotherhood. So you had a movement like uh, Tamarut, which tried to appear as a popular movement, but in actuality, it was funded by the Gulf capital to decide to make the people hate the Muslim Brotherhood and go out in demonstrations against them and so on. So the people in 2013 decided to go out in the streets and to remove the Muslim Brotherhood from power because the economic conditions were not improving that much. And the military decided to capitalize on that. And they, once again, like 2011, they appeared to intervene in the side of the people. Like they arrested all the leadership of the Muslim Brotherhood and put them in jail, and then they took power through the person of Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. And uh, that's pretty much how it happened during that year. And ever since then, let's say that the political scene has pretty much died down. Like after the arrest of the Muslim Brotherhood, they also decided to turn on the liberal parties and socialist parties as well, that basically anyone who tried to say anything against the regime was being painted as a terrorist and a threat to national security and unity. Like after Sisi took power, it was all about, you know, tightening our belts to build up the economy and so on. Uh, and the people for a moment believed it because unfortunately the army back then had a very positive image in the eyes of the Egyptians. Uh, but as we all know that uh, Sisi coming to power or the, or the Muslim Brotherhood coming to power, it all meant the same thing for the average Egyptian, which is a continuation of the new liberal policies that has been, in, been enacted since Sadat came to power, which meant that the fundamental reasons for the terrible conditions in Egypt will continue. And uh, as we all know that as soon as Sisi took power, he decided to make a propaganda about huge construction projects 
that will supposedly uh, improve our living conditions and uh, make Egypt strong and independent and so on. And this started with the building of the new Swiss Canal. Like you wanted to expand it because supposedly it would increase our revenue from the Swiss Canal, which contributes a lot to our, you know, our income from dollars due to tariffs and so on. It cost us about $4 billion or something like that. But unfortunately, due to global problems back then and how costly the project was for our economy and how uncertain the outcome was, it resulted in our economy basically being depleted of foreign exchange and uh, facing a crisis. So in 2015, he decided to make a conference in Sharm Sheikh to attract you know, more foreign investments. And uh, he will also try to beg for Gulf capital. Like during the whole time, the Saudis and Emiratis have been funding the CC regime, sending a lot of aid in billions of dollars across the years to keep up the government to allow them to keep their investments in Egypt. And uh, this led to him talk, making talks with the International Monetary Fund. And this led to a big decision in 2016 to float the value of the Egyptian pound, which resulted in basically reducing the real wages of every single Egyptian earning his wage or her wage in Egyptian pounds by half. Like the US dollar used to equal about nine uh, Egyptian pounds and suddenly it became 18. And this obviously was a very big useful help for foreign investments that now they have the cheap labor and the cheap investments in companies like their, their value was basically much cheaper to invest in now. And, uh, and this resulted in a flood of, of loans. Like if you see a graph for the external debt of Egypt before and after 2016, before 2016, it was $40 billion. After 2016, right, right now, it's about $140 billion. So it's almost an increase of three and a half times. And uh, the military used all of these loans to build more infrastructure projects that were pretty much useless. You have the huge amounts of roads and bridges that the regime has decided to build without any attention to feasibility studies like Sisi himself takes pride in not listening to feasibility studies. He said live on air that he, if he followed feasibility studies, he would have achieved only 20% of the projects he has, uh, he have done right now. And you also have uh, another, let's say uh, a disastrous decision that he decided to do, which is the new administrative capital which is uh, equal to about 40 or $50 billion now spent. And the, rise is, the price is still increasing. Like he wants to make a new capital for the Egyptians because supposedly Cairo is being uh, too overpopulated by the people. So he wants to diversify our population. But the problem is the new administrative capital has cost us so much money and it has pretty much let us dry. And this has led us to take more loans and these more loans were used in such unproductive projects. And the cycle has kept going on that we are now in a very deep crisis as the COVID-19 pandemic hits. So as we can see that CCO regime has been very useful for both the capitalists in the Gulf countries in America and Europe, 
And for the army commanders here who are pretty much a capitalist class on their own, and they have been benefiting from all these infrastructure projects, like they have been uh, controlled by the military companies and contractors. And um, yeah, at the same time, he kept making, reducing the living standards of the Egyptian people by cutting subsidies, imposing more taxes, uh, and raising prices of pretty much every service out there. Like one small example is the metro ticket used to cost one Egyptian pound. Now we have tiers of tickets and uh, the least expensive one is five Egyptian pounds. And uh, you can pretty much set this example for any other service out there. Like after he spent so much money on such wasteful projects, the only way he now has the only way he now has to make earnings and, and revenue from the people is by raising taxes and uh, making things pretty much harder for us. Well, thank you. Um, thank you for that. And I think just to kind of continue talking a little bit more about it, you mentioned a couple of times the neoliberal project starting with Anwar Sadat, and I'm curious about how this also relates to Sadat's turn towards uh, supporting Israel uh, and kind of how that relates to the broader, you know, backed by America, of course, but trying to push Egypt, Saudi Arabia, uh, other Arab nations closer to Israel and kind of make them support um, the Zionist project uh, as kind of a way of imposing U.S. hegemony in the region. So. Maybe, I guess that would be taking us a little bit further back, but maybe that can relate to the relationship today of how Egypt continues to support Israel and, and how the relationship is still, you know, of course, sponsored by the United States, but I'm curious about that as well. All right, so uh, as of our relationship with the Americans and Israel, we have to remember that uh, when Gamal Abdel Nasser came to power, he based his, uh, you know, his ideology on pan-Arabism or Arab nationalism. And one of its core values was the destruction of the settler state of Israel and the liberation of Palestine. And this was not done, done out of, you know, uh, higher moral values or anything like that. Like Gamal Abdel Nasser and the free officers, were pretty much uh, a petty bourgeois class of their own. Like they wanted to implement the capitalist project in Egypt, but through the pan-Arabism, like through Arab nationalism. And that's why you had something like the unity between us and Syria, which was about Egyptian capital trying to dominate the Syrian markets and the Syrian policies which is why it did not live for so long. Like the Syrians pretty much so soon that uh, they are at the risk of being taken over by the Egyptian bourgeois. So they decided to dissolve it. So as we can see that Gamal Abdel Nasser was using pan-Arabism as a way of spreading Egyptian hegemony and building you know, uh, Egyptian capitalism. But then came the defeat of uh, the Six Day War in 1967. And that pretty much defeated the, the image of pan-Arabism and destroyed its, uh, its support among the Egyptian capitalist class. And then you started to see groups within the ruling circles that did not want the war anymore because they saw that it's not profitable, that the war is not winnable in the first place. And they saw that they have better chances of securing more profits from themselves through alignment with the US and Israel. And that's where Sadat came in, but he did not want to do it right away because he knew that if he wanted to normalize relationship with Israel right away while Sinai was still occupied, he knew that the Egyptian people would 
go out in revolts against him. And already before the war in uh, 1973, the people were pressuring him to attack Israel and try to liberate our lands. And so basically that war was due to popular demand, to pressure from below, and he decided to do it anyway. So of course we managed to fight it and then we got encircled and our armies lost and so on. But at least Sadat managed to make his message clear that he is ready for peace as long as all Egyptian land is restored. And this pretty much was uh, uh, good for everyone involved. Like the US finally managed to get Egypt in on its side and Israel managed to make the largest Arab country on its side as well. And uh, the Egyptian capitalists managed to stop the war and uh, focus on earning money inside and you know not not being concerned with uh, fighting israel and wasting resources on it while at the same time saving their dignity and uh, prestige among the egyptian people thanks and and uh, i'm curious to relate today how, how this kind of continues with the relationship between Egypt and Israel still today under al-Sisi with kind of the US backing of that relationship? Well, it, uh, it has pretty much continued ever since then, even during the, the year of Muslim Brotherhood rule. They, uh, at first, before coming to power, they were talking about being hostile to Israel and so on which worried the, the West a lot and worried Israel a lot because they do not want uh, any more trouble from our side, uh, which is why through Gulf capital, they managed to convince the Muslim Brotherhood to drop any notions of fighting against Israel. And, uh, and that's why you found the Muslim Brotherhood toned down their, their you know, their hatred a lot to Israel by the time they that they took power, and we also do. We have to remember that Egypt receives a lot of aid from the U.S. for uh, in exchange for being at peace with Israel. Like I think we receive about a billion or two billion dollars a year from that alone, and you also have the pressure of Gulf capital as well. Like Gulf capital and uh, capitalists in Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates are like in alliance with the West. Like during the revolution, they were the, the channel through which aid arrived to us. Like the West could not do it directly because the people here would be angry. So they relied on the Gulf capital to give us aid in exchange for remaining within the Western camp. So we can see that the uh, ruling class in Egypt did not or could not gain anything from opposing the American hegemony, considering that there was no alternative for us, like no aid from Russia or China in exchange for doing that. And this pretty much continues to this day. Like it, it ramped up even more with the recently, like there was a conference in uh, Negev in Israel about more collaboration between Egypt, Israel, Bahrain, and uh, the United Arab Emirates, basically all the countries that have uh, normalized relations with Israel. And uh, you can expect that this will continue even more. Yeah. I, I'm I guess I'm, I'm also interested with that, with the contemporary scene uh, in Egypt about kind of, so I guess two questions, which the first would be, and, and I guess they're kind of related, which is uh, on the left in Egypt, like, I guess we can talk a little bit about that. I know we talked briefly about this, about whether there is still a left, what is left of, of the political left in Egypt. And then re very related to that, I suppose, is the, jailing of political dissidents and the the political prisoners if you can talk 
a little bit about that and how the government has kind of gone very far in, in jailing uh, a lot of political dissidents um, and how this relates to, I guess, crushing any potential left-wing activity in the country. Okay, I see. So about the left in Egypt, it's uh, safe to say that it's uh, in a very deep crisis right now. And like even before the revolution in 2011, it was also in crisis. And uh, even if, if you go back to, to the time of, of uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, you would find that the Egyptian Communist Party was pretty much following the Soviet revisionist idea of uh, collaborating with the nationalist bourgeoisie in order to take uh, a non-capitalist path to socialism as they described us back then. So as you can see that the Egyptian left was, you know, not as influential as uh, other countries back then, it was facing an ideological crisis. And this continued during the Sadat era, during his correction policies, he decided to arrest the people who were Nasserists and also communists while mm, extending uh, friendship to the Islamist parties and groups. So this led to a huge decline in the whatever's in insignificant or whatever influence the left has then it was taken over by the Islamists. And Sadat was pretty much satisfied with that. Like he was happy with being friends with the Islamists considering that they were also funded by the Americans during the war in Afghanistan and so on. And he saw them as a counterweight to the left. So he made an alliance with them. And it continued also during Mubarak era, like I told you that they also gave uh, like limited autonomy to the Muslim Brotherhood. They were painted as the opposition during his rule. And unfortunately, the left was unable to make any sufficient alternative to both these sides, whether the side of the army or the side of the Muslim Brotherhood. And I frankly don't know what is the reason for this. Mm. I guess it has to do with the defeat of socialism worldwide, like the dissolution of the Soviet Union and China's turn to capitalism and pragmatism more than any, you know, sticking to a coherent internationalist socialist ideology. And you can also say that the left is not really involved in the everyday struggles of the workers. Like you had in 2008, the uh, infamous protests of textile factories workers in Mahalla. They were angry about the lack of wages and so on and so forth. And they burned uh, pictures of Mubarak and they had strikes and so on. But unfortunately there was not as far as I know, there was not any presence by the socialists or communists. Maybe there were some elements in the trade unions there, but there was no obvious socialist party as far as I am aware. And you can also see that there was um, a lack of vision by the existing communist parties or socialist parties. Like you have a party like the Revolutionary Socialists. It has uh, been existing, but unfortunately it's very small in presence, like a very small membership and so on. And even they are not sure how to deal with the Muslim Brotherhood. Like sometimes they would say that they are reactionary and we have to side against them. And sometimes they say that they can be a progressive force against the hegemony of the Egyptian army. So as you can see that it's more about um, fatalism or seeing what's currently happening and reacting to it instead of doing things themselves, like trying to take the initiative. And you also have 
something like the Egyptian Communist Party, which should be the, the most known party or most known communist party here in Egypt. First off, nobody knows about it. Nobody cares about it. And second thing, they made some really weird statements, like after the coup by uh, LCC in 2013, they pretty much supported it fully, like they fully supported it. They said that it's a progressive thing and a progressive revolution against the reactionary elements of the Muslim Brotherhood. So you can see that there is a, a very deep crisis among the left. It, uh, it can't make its own identity, its own front to try to attract the people, to try to channel their energies into change to try to show them why things are, what they are like now in Egypt. And you also have the problem of uh, oppression by the Egyptian regime. Like ever since Sisi took power, the state decided to ramp up the surveillance of, civ of civilians, the arrest of anyone who tries to protest. Like you only need to take a sign against the government and stand in Tahrir Square to get arrested. So as you can see that they do not allow any space for any talk at all. So they try to prevent the sparks that appeared during Mubarak era by stopping pretty much any political activities. And you can also see that in universities, like before that, we used to have the student groups or like, uh, yeah, they were like semi-political groups or like students of, of, you know, socialists, for example, would form together for uh, a group of students and so on. The government decided to dissolve all of that as well and declare it illegal. And you now have students groups made by the regime itself to try to channel all the youth energy towards these to, to make the state involved in, in pretty much every aspect of political life. Yeah, and, and with that, I, I'm curious with that surveillance and that kind of mass crackdown on dissidents, how can you kind of update on the situation of the political prisoners um, in Egypt and and just how bad that, that situation is getting with the, the crackdowns and the surveillance. Well, unfortunately, if you ask the regime whether we have political prisoners here, they would either tell you that we do not have any political prisoners or that they are getting the best treatment or that they are terrorists and getting what they deserve. So it's, it's very opaque, so to speak about the situation of political prisoners here, but we do manage to get reports like um, from the prisoners themselves of torture, of inhumane uh, treatment. And, um, you know, like the government pretty much does not care about political prisoners. And this can be seen from the amount of Muslim Brotherhood members who have died in prison due to lack of health care and uh, adequate treatment and so on. And uh, we don't have any solid numbers about the number of political prisoners, but according to Human Rights Watch, we have about 60,000 political prisoners right now in Egypt. And uh, you also, speaking of the oppression, it ramped up pretty significantly in 2019. Like if you had followed the news back then in Egypt, there was a businessman called Muhammad Ali, who was a contractor doing uh, building construction projects for the regime. And they decided to swindle him of his money and not pay him. So he escaped to Spain and decided to make videos about it on YouTube. And these videos managed to get a lot of attention and a lot of people you know, got angry. And this resulted in very small scale 
protests in mid-September, I guess. And it took uh, a lot of people by surprise. But unfortunately, they, due to surveillance cameras all over Cairo and during to the, the state securities uh, apparatus moving very quickly, they managed to arrest a lot of people. And even then, people were anticipating a, a revolution on the next Friday. But if you had gone down the streets that day, you would have found the police presence in pretty much every area in Cairo, like not just Tahrir Square or the downtown area, you would find them even in the slums. And back then, they pretty much arrested people or arrested men specifically randomly. You only had to be walking down the street, like literally you only had to be walking down the street to be arrested by them. And huge numbers were arrested back then. And the crackdown was so brutal and so chaotic and arbitrary that even figures from the media decided to say that the government is going way way too extreme with its, uh, you know, with its watch of the order in Egypt. And this resulted in the regime releasing some prisoners back then. But as you can see that it's, uh, the, the regime has pretty much free reign in arresting people. And you can't really complain about it. Yeah, thank you for that. And it, it's pretty horrible. Um, I've, I've been following a little bit some of the the torture as you're describing, and and it, it's pretty terrible. I guess my last question would be, kind of from your perspective, um, what you see as potentially the future now after the revolution and the fail the failure of the revolution in 2011. Uh, what do you see as the the future kind of going forward? Like I know with the the recent uh ukraine crisis now this has had an effect on egypt uh and has caused like the the food crisis that is growing um but also how do you see egypt's relationship to america uh and to uh and to israel and to saudi arabia kind of developing further as this conflict with the united states and iran uh kind of continues to develop in the Middle East and continues to grow. And Egypt is, is pretty much firmly on the US side. Kind of what do you see as the, the possibilities for change um, and, and potential future activity to change the situation in Egypt? Well, we can be clear that the conditions that led to the Arab Spring in the Middle East in general uh, are still there and have only gotten worse. Like the Middle East region is the most unequal region when it comes to income disparity. So the oppression is still there, the suffering is still there, the poverty levels have only gone up since the revolution of 2011. And pretty much when you look at any aspect like education, healthcare, uh, wages, like even like something as the freedom of speech. Everything has gotten much, much worse since 2011. So uh, another rebellion or revolution is, is uh, inevitable. Since, you know, the, the worse things get, the, the more the people will be angry. But if a revolution happens this time in Egypt, it will be pretty much unique because, as I said before, the army preferred to be in the shadows, to rule Egypt from the shadows during Mubarak's era or during uh, the Muslim Brotherhood era. So now, if the Egyptians decided to go down the streets, they will face the true enemy that they did not realize uh, that they did not realize it was the enemy back during. The, the Arab Spring, and that is the Egyptian army. So that will be uh, a very dangerous thing for the Egyptian people. Like we do not know if how the army will react. Will it try again to pretend that uh, 
it's uh, on the people's side, like where they dissociate themselves from the CC regime and say that he has gone rogue on them and so on. They will protect the people's rights or will they go down with the rifles and decide to pretty much hedge their, their bets against us. And uh, as for the collaboration between Egypt and the Gulf and Israel, as we all know that the revenue from oil is not as profitable as before. So the Gulf monarchies have to diversify their sources of income. And these sources come in the form of um, investments in not only Egypt, but other relatively poor Arab countries such as Jordan, Tunisia, Morocco, and so on. You'd find that uh, Gulf capital has um, considerable presence in the sectors of food and agriculture and financial things, financial institutions, and also in the construction, uh, construction market, like the real estate market. They also have considerable uh, influence in it. So that means that even more capital from the Gulf monarchies will be invested in Egypt, which means Egypt will become more and more submissive to the decision of mainly the Gulf monarchies and afterwards the, the West and Europe. And as we have seen lately, uh, Saudi Arabia's like um, them thinking about paying for oil, for selling oil in the UN rather than the US dollar, it might mean that the Gulf monarchies might decide to shift their allegiance a bit from complete reliance on the US to a more of pragmatism between the US and China. As you can see that the Americans have decided to reduce their presence in the region, whether in Iraq or in Afghanistan, and the Saudi Arabia and the Emiratis were pretty much disappointed with the lack of support from the US uh, regarding their war in Yemen. So that's leading the Gulf monarchies to try to carve up their own paths, basically. And this involves normalizing uh, relations with Israel, to focus on countering uh, the presence of uh, Iran. And um, they're trying to, you know, this means that Egypt will pretty much be tied to what the Gulf wants more than what America or the, the European Union wants. Well, thank you so much. Um, this was really informative and it was really interesting to learn more about, about what's been happening since the revolution. I think a lot of Americans and, and other people have kind of taken their eyes off Egypt since 2011 and forgotten um, what's happened since then. And like you said, it's kind of been this ability to uh, think that since LCC came to power, well, you know, nothing's happened since then. Um, but I think, as you're saying, there there is a lot still happening. There's still plenty of repression and and crackdown and making it harder to live there. And and I guess my very, my last thing would just be like, is there anything people should know about you know living in Egypt and and what it's like because of the American control over American control and the Gulf control over the uh, the economy over the political conditions there. Like how, how does this affect living on a day-to-day -day basis uh, in Egypt? Well, it, um, uh, as an engineer and being from uh, a relatively middle-class family, uh, what I see from my fellow friends from their own middle-class families that that they are also like engineers and classmates in my university. The decision has been basically just trying to find any way out of the country. Like there is now a, a, a severe lack of hope uh, about any change in Egypt. Like they, as you can see that the severe repression 
is a, a reaction to the desires of people for, for a better life. And this means that uh, people are trying to find a better way, but the regime is simply trying to stop any of that. So people now are turning to trying to find a way out. And uh, let me like um, tell you something that uh, I think that we should pay uh, a great attention to, and that is climate change. Like, uh, as we all know that the Middle East is warming up twice the rate of the average rise in temperature across the globe. And there are reports that Alexandria will be below sea level by 2050. And uh, people here have been noticing the changes regarding the climate. Like the summers here have been more, you know, more brutal and more harsh on us. We have, uh, we have seen crop failures. We have seen uh, salination of the soil, like the increasing of salt in it due to rising sea levels in, uh, in the north of Egypt. So as you can see that Egypt is facing deep crises and uh, people are not seeing a way out of it. So it has led to, you know, uh, a huge wave of depression and uh, anyway of trying to basically migrate to, to Europe or America or even the Gulf for a better life. Yeah, and it's, it's very tragic, I think, um, how destabilizing the role of the United States is and making so many people have to leave the country in order to have any opportunity. And I think also, like you're saying, that the impact of climate change already we're seeing now uh, the food crisis, as I said, uh, from Ukraine that has kind of has been happening for, for a long time, not just starting with Ukraine, but now is being intensified as well. And climate change plays a huge role in that. Um, well, thank you again for, for talking to me. I, I really appreciated it. And, uh, uh, I, you know, stay safe. Um, thank you for, for informing me and, uh, and I'm sure this will be very valuable for people looking to learn more about Egypt. Um, but yeah, solidarity to you. And, and you know, I, I hope that things can change in Egypt. Yeah. Yes, it's been a pleasure to talk with you and know that uh, there are still comrades out there who, who care about what's happening in the Middle East. Yeah, no, for sure. And, it, and it's very important too, I mean, to understand what's happening with Egypt is is critical to understanding what's happening with Palestine as well, with the U.S. Uh, conflict with Iran, with as you mentioned with Yemen as well. So it's a very integral part. And then even to understand what's happening in Sudan as well. Like I, I've been following what's happening in Sudan, what's happening in Ethiopia. It's very it's very related um, in many ways. So yeah, it's it's important to know. But like. Like I said earlier, it seems like a lot of people paid attention in 2011 a little bit when it happened during the Arab Spring, and then since then have totally, you know, it, it's like slipped their minds. But it's very important to continue following what's happening um, in these places that the U.S. domination continues to affect. Yeah, the struggle will always continue here in Egypt as long as the oppression continues. So hopefully, yeah. we'll see it change pretty soon. Yeah. No, I hope so for sure. Um, so yeah, thanks so much and and take care, stay safe and uh, I'll stay in touch on Twitter. Um, and uh, yeah, have a great rest of your day. All right, thank you. And right, thank uh, you. I'll see you soon. Thanks. Bye -bye.